Hi, ParCast listeners, Carter here. And this is Wendy. Welcome back to Dark Green, Earth Crimes and Conspiracies. For this event, ParCast is investigating the shadowy corners where crime and the environment meet and telling those stories. Because climate change affects all parts of society, including crimes and conspiracies. If you're enjoying our Earth Day episodes and would like to learn more or take action on the climate, visit www.spotify.com slash darkgreenresources. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of killings, suicide, violence, torture, psychological abuse, and extreme animal cruelty. Consider this when deciding how and when you'll listen. And one more note before we begin, though today's story is true, certain moments have been fictionalized and dramatized by actors. Diane Fossey's will had two key requests. One, that she be buried next to her favorite gorilla, Digit. And two, that her gravestone read, Nira Machabelli, or Woman Who Lives Alone on the Mountain. It reflected how she was known worldwide as the woman who dedicated her life to the plight of the endangered gorilla, which is why her murder was so shocking. She was found dead just two days after Christmas in 1985, then buried quickly following Rwandan tradition. The funeral was held at a research camp in Karasoki on New Year's Eve. Though the guest list was modest, it included the Rwandan president's brother-in-law, Prote Zigiran Yirazo, a local official better known as Mr. Z. It also included Diane's good friend, Rosamond Carr, Roz was devastated, but amid her grief, she couldn't escape the question that hung over the entire affair. Who killed Diane Fossey, and why? To try to answer that, we're doing something a little different in today's episode. We'll spend a little bit of time with the initial investigation, but then we'll explore three distinct theories about Diane's murder and three sets of suspects. Now, if you're wondering why a beloved icon like Diane Fossey had so many potential killers, well, she wasn't just a gorilla-cuddling activist. In her quest to protect Rwanda's environment, she could be ruthless. Ruthless enough to make a lot of people angry. Maybe even angry enough to murder her. As Diane herself once said in a TV interview. I'm not here to make friends. This is Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our final episode on guerrilla researcher Diane Fossey whose efforts to save African gorillas changed the world. She was internationally beloved, but as we'll learn today, she was also locally despised. In December 1985, she was found in her cabin in Rwanda, hacked to death with a machete. 
Today, we'll unveil the woman behind the curtain and explore three major theories about her murder, because people aren't always how they seem. Just after Christmas in 1985, investigators arrived at Diane Fossey's research center at Karasoki. Outside, there was a three-foot hole cut in the cabin's tin siding. Inside, they found her body laying on the floor. Her face was slashed open and bleeding. She'd been slashed six times by a machete. It was shocking to say the least, but they weren't there to gawk. They were there to collect evidence and find out who did it. Unfortunately, most of the investigatory process was filled with errors. First, there were the footprints outside Diane's cabin. Karasoki workers marked them off with sticks before the investigators arrived. Investigators could have at least determined shoe size or the direction the murderer had gone, but the police didn't photograph them properly. Next was the matter of death. They didn't perform an autopsy and just assumed Diane's death was caused by machete wounds. And then there was Diane's own collection of machetes lining the wall. They could have tested them for fingerprints, but the investigators touched them with their own bare hands. Any fingerprint evidence was compromised. The only thing useful they did was to find human hair clutched in Diane's hands. While DNA analysis wasn't yet an option, they sent the sample off to a lab in France to learn what little they could, but it would be a while before they would know anything. The Rwandan police didn't have much to go off of, only theories and hearsay, much of which we'll explore today. And their first theory? That Diane was killed by someone close to her. Now, if you think of that photo of Diane and Digit, their fingers touching, this seems hard to believe. Who would murder someone so tender and gentle? Well, as we alluded to a little bit in part one, Diane wasn't always that gentle with humans. In fact, many at Karasoki were, let's say, disenthused about Diane. It wasn't just locals. It was also the bright young researchers that traveled all the way to Karasoki to work for their hero. Diane was patronizing towards her PhD student assistants. She called them mtoto, the Swahili word for child, and she was strict. So strict, she'd chew them out if they even tried to think about anything besides gorillas, like dating. We imagine her talking to her assistants saying something like this. You are here for gorillas, Mtoto. I expect you to eat, sleep, and crap gorillas. No more dinners, no more drinking, no more flirting. Gorillas. Hear that, Mtoto? Knowing this about Diane, investigators questioned all workers, foreign and Rwandan alike. Anyone who had a motive to kill her in a crime of passion. And soon they zeroed in on one, a local, Emmanuel Relicana, who'd worked on and off at Karasoki for years. On and off because Diane had a habit of firing Relicana, at least when he didn't quit first. See, they had a mercurial relationship. Their egos often clashed because they were both confident high achievers. Diane always hired him back. She respected him. 
Relicana was one of the best gorilla trackers around. She needed him. Still, rumors said Diane didn't always treat him with respect. So it was easy for investigators to imagine how Diane could have pushed him to his breaking point. Maybe after one of the many times she fired him, which might have gone like so. Relicana, you think you can just waltz right back in here after you abandoned us? We can find gorillas just fine without you. I found you dozens of gorillas. I earn my check every time I'm rehired. So I'm here for last month's pay. Remind me, why did you quit? You threw a flashlight at me. Wrong. Tell me why you really quit if you want your money. I quit because I'm not as smart as you. Apologies. I don't accept. Get on your knees. Show me you're sorry. I'm sorry, madame. Louder. Come on, so the whole camp can hear you. I'm sorry, madame. I'm sorry, madame. Good. Take your money. And get up. You look pathetic down there. We've got work to do. Diane's behavior towards Relicana was unconscionable, yes, and could push anyone to a breaking point. But Relicana was an unlikely suspect. He had a rock-solid alibi. He wasn't at Karasoki on the night Diane was killed. He was at home with his daughter. Add to that the fact that the hair in Diane's hand seemed to be from a white person. And you'd think Emmanuel would be in the clear. And yet, investigators seemed heavily biased against him. They just couldn't give up the idea Relicana did it. So instead of dismissing him, they just added a layer to their theory. They decided he couldn't have done it alone. They needed to find his co-conspirators. Which brings us back to the hair. In the summer of 1986, Rwandan authorities' lab reports confirmed that the hair in Diane's hand wasn't hers. This report concluded that it belonged to another Caucasian. And there was one white person staying at Karasoki the night Diane was killed, Wayne McGuire. Now, Wayne may have been closer to Diane than most. He even had Christmas dinner with her on her last night alive. But they also had a tense past. When he first asked to come to Karasoki for his PhD research, Diane said no. McGuire wrote back, making a compelling case for his study on guerrilla parenting. Diane said no again. She made him wait four full years before letting him come. And once he finally got to Karasoki, she generally treated him like she treated everyone else, poorly. McGuire was a big man who could easily overpower Diane and whose beard might have been easy for her to grab. He was one of the last people to see her alive and one of the first to report her dead. The police pinned McGuire as Relicana's co-conspirator and told the U.S. Embassy. The embassy, in turn, told McGuire who fled the country. Rwandan authorities sent out an international bulletin. Help us find and arrest Wayne McGuire. They already had Relicana in custody. Again, we can't say this enough. There was extremely limited evidence. But the authorities were convinced it was a revenge killing, maybe one orchestrated by Relicana and pulled off by McGuire. The circumstances evoked memories of another recent murder, that of Joy Adamson, 
another white woman who came to Africa to study wildlife. Like Diane did with gorillas, Joy was the first Western person to make contact with wild lions and bring the world's attention to protecting them. And the parallels extend further, because in 1980, Joy was murdered. Her killer was a former employee who gave a dramatic confession, explaining how Joy abused him and even shot at him. Which might explain how Rwandan investigators zeroed in on Diane's own former employee. Those authorities may have expected a similar confession from Relicana. They never got one, but by the end of summer 1986, they formally charged Emmanuel Relicana and Wayne McGuire with murder. And soon after, both were found guilty. The authorities quickly declared Diane Fossey's murder solved. Some would say too quickly. The trial lasted just half an hour. No witnesses were called for the defense, and neither McGuire or Relicana were present. McGuire stayed in the U.S., where he made a public statement of innocence. While the U.S. government didn't help clear his name, they didn't press charges of their own. The U.S. doesn't extradite to Rwanda, so as long as McGuire didn't leave the country, he'd stay out of prison. Relicana's fate was much worse. He was kept in jail, away from his family for a crime he claimed he was innocent of. While awaiting trial, he had been found hanged in his cell. Officials ruled it a suicide. But even afterwards, many doubted the accusations against Relicana. Relicana had a solid alibi. He was home with family, and there's simply no evidence against him, other than Diane mistreating him. But by that standard, Diane was murdered by everyone who ever worked for her. This was backed up by Diane's friend, Roz Carr, who knew Diane could be prickly, but sincerely doubted Relicana had killed her. Then there's the fact that McGuire and Relicana didn't speak any of the same languages. How could they collude when they couldn't even communicate? Both National Geographic and journalist Nicholas Gordon interviewed people who were around the prison where Relicana died, and their sources were clear. It wasn't suicide. A former member of the secret police and a former prison guard both claimed the suicide was staged and that Relicana was actually killed, that he was made into a sacrificial scapegoat so that the case could be closed. Whatever the case may be, it's pretty clear Relicana didn't do it, and probably neither did McGuire. The only evidence pointing toward McGuire was the Caucasian hair found in Diane's hands. Tragically, the samples were lost or destroyed before the advent of DNA testing that could have confirmed the hair's owner. Even if it was McGuire's, it might not have been ripped from his body in Diane's final fight. See, McGuire claimed that Diane once cut his hair and kept it for witchcraft. If you recall from our last episode, Diane sometimes pretended to be a witch in order to intimidate Rwandans. This involved taking human hair clippings to make charms. And according to journalist Nicholas Gordon, investigators examining Diane's possessions found an envelope labeled Wayne McGuire, containing human hair. It's unknown how many clippings Diane may have kept in her cabin or who they came from. 
The hair could have belonged to any one of the many researchers who worked at Karasoki over the years, or even her old lover, Bob Campbell. As for why Diane would have the hair in her hands as she was killed, well, she could have been using it for protection against our next set of suspects. Animal poachers. Coming up, a deeper look at Diane Fossey's lifelong nemesis. Listeners, we hope you're enjoying our Earth Day special. Here's a reminder that you can find more of Dark Green, Earth Crimes, and Conspiracies on other podcast series all month long. Serial Killers has done an incredible job with their explorations of two men whose love of the outdoors was surpassed by their desires to kill. Check out their episodes on the unicorn killer Ira Einhorn and the national forest killer Gary Michael Hilton. You can also find new episodes on conspiracy theories, unexplained mysteries, and disappearances. And if you'd like to take action on the climate or learn more about the topics covered in Dark Green, Earth Crimes, and Conspiracies, visit spotify.com slash darkgreenresources. Now, back to the story. The Rwandan government found Wayne McGuire and Emmanuel Relicana guilty of killing Diane Fossey in 1986. But the prevailing public opinion is that they were just scapegoats. That brings us to our second theory. Diane was really killed by animal poachers. There's physical evidence that points to this theory. First off, the three-foot hole in Diane's cabin wall looked like it was cut with a machete or another large blade, the kind favored by local animal poachers, maybe the kind that killed Diane. And while McGuire or Relicana could have gotten a hold of a machete, they wouldn't have had to break in. Diane knew them, so they could have just knocked on Diane's door. Then there's the two sets of footprints coming into Karasoki from the outside, leading to Diane's cabin. From what could be seen of the photos, it's clear whoever made them was barefoot. According to the National Geographic documentary, Secrets in the Mist, it was common for Rwandans to walk around barefoot, but everyone working at Karasoki wore boots. The bits of hair in Diane's hand could also factor into this theory. Diane often used hair charms and a witch persona to scare poachers off, so maybe she tried to frighten her attackers into leaving her cabin. And most importantly, unlike Diane's employees, poachers would have had a clear motive to kill her. You see, to protect her favorite animals from poachers, Diane wasn't just putting up gorilla habitat keep out signs. According to researcher Ian Redmond, she was extreme. Redmond says Diane bribed the guards at the borders of the National Park to capture any poacher they saw and bring them to her. At Karasoki, Diane and her workers allegedly tied the men up, psychologically tortured them, and even physically humiliated them. She'd put on her witch persona, say spells, and hurl insults. According to one of her students, Kelly Stewart, she'd spit on them, kick them, and trap them in their own animal snares. She'd even have her workers irritate their genitals with stinging nettles or smear them with gorilla droppings. And when she was finished, she'd allegedly feed the poachers sleeping pills and have them dragged out of the mountains. After each interrogation, Diane made lists. Names, when and where they were caught, and so on. 
This was all to rat them out to the Rwandan equivalent of the FBI and one day see every poacher thrown in jail. Diane once wrote to the U.S. ambassador in Rwanda saying the only way to save the gorillas was to punish animal poaching with death. She also said, There's only black and white when it comes to saving the gorillas. Diane saw herself as a vigilante hero and referred to all of this as active conservation. To be clear, her definition of the term was way more extreme than the typical environmentalist's version, and the Rwandan government didn't tolerate it. Whenever they heard Diane had captured another poacher, they'd press charges, notify the American embassy, and slap Diane with a fine. But while the embassy grew increasingly worried, Diane paid the fines happily. To her, the gorillas were worth it. And she wasn't alone in her actions. Once in 1971, one of her English researchers spotted two poachers and shot them. The poachers lived, but they retaliated. Soon after, they killed six gorillas. In the wake of the incident, National Geographic threatened to pull funding from Karasoki. But Diane's lover, photographer Bob Campbell, greased some wheels. They had to fire the offending researcher, but they kept Karasoki. After all, Diane hadn't shot any poachers. But in the 80s, tension escalated. Diane's friend, Ian Redmond, and her successor, David Watts, told National Geographic about one particularly upsetting incident. It all started when someone bought a gun. For years, Rwandans had killed gorillas with spears, machetes, or bows and arrows. But when Diane heard there was a gun-wielding poacher in the area, she armed herself and drove down to the village where the gun supposedly was. I know you have a gun. Hand it over and I'll leave you alone. Come on! I know one of you must speak English. There is no gun here, and if there were, we wouldn't give it to you. Go home. Give me the gun, or I'll burn down this hut. I'm serious. Try. You take away the gorilla's home, you take away everyone's home. You see? I'm doing it. I'm, I'm putting this mat in the fire. Please stop. My son is scared. Hand over the gun. If you don't, I'll take the boy away. Make your bed. You'll have to lie in it. Get your hands off of him! I don't want to do this. So, last chance. Kid or gun? There is no gun, Diane Fossey. Forced to make good on her threat, Diane drove the boy to Karasoki. Diane, what's with the kid? I had to prove I was serious, so I took him. Took him? This is kidnapping. These poachers rip baby gorillas from their families all the time. It's a taste of their own medicine. So you're acting just like the poachers now? I'm not. Oh. Oh, no. What am I going to do? Take him home? He's, what, seven? Do you know his name? Uh, I'm not sure. He doesn't speak English. He doesn't even know English, and you just took him with you? I, I... I didn't have a choice. I thought they would give me the gun when I grabbed the kid. 
It'll be dark soon, so I'll, I'll figure out what to do with him in the morning. Trapped in Karasoki, the boy was probably terrified. Even if they'd been shielded from the rumors of Diane's torture, she was known for practicing black magic. Once the boy entered Diane's cabin, he likely saw stolen machetes hung like hunting trophies and Rwandan hair charms on Diane's desk. The poor child was living out the worst version of a fairy tale. He'd been kidnapped by an evil witch and had to spend the night in her house. The next morning, Diane seemed to rethink her decision. Or maybe she felt she'd made her point. Either way, she sent the boy home to his family unharmed. The Rwandan government fined Diane for kidnapping, and she paid them. After this, Diane briefly left to go teach at Cornell, but when she was back, she continued to torment poachers. Again, her take on active conservation. So the poachers hit Diane where it hurt. They killed Digit, her favorite gorilla. That was traumatic to Diane, but it still didn't force her off the mountain. So, according to the second theory surrounding her death, the poachers took more drastic measures, which could have gone like this. In the dark of night, a group of poachers hurried barefoot to Diane's cabin. They sliced a hole in the tin wall and broke in. Diane grabbed her hair charms, hoping to scare them, but the poachers were no longer afraid of this so-called witch. While she clung to her useless charms, they hacked her to death. On the surface, the theory makes sense, but it's also one that paints poachers as inherently aggressive and retaliatory. Truthfully, there's more nuance to it. Yes, poachers were motivated to do something about Diane. After all, she was getting in the way of their livelihood. But that is the key word, livelihood. Poaching was just that, a job, not a passion. See, at that time in Rwanda, money and jobs were scarce and demand for gorilla skulls and hands was high. Europeans wanted them as trophies or they wanted baby gorillas for their zoos. And those same Europeans were willing to pay locals a lot of money to get them. The practice was highly illegal, but for the local Rwandans, it was also a paycheck. It was a choice between breaking the law or letting their kids starve, yet another after-effect of colonialism. So as long as there was money in it, they'd keep poaching. But that doesn't mean they murdered Diane. Again, there wasn't really any evidence. Just hearsay, stories, and rumors spread almost as if her real killer wanted the public to blame poachers, like it was all a cover-up for something much bigger. Coming up, we'll explore the theory that Maguire, Relicana, and the poachers were all framed. Now, back to the story. Though the Rwandan government officially concluded Diane Fossey's murder investigation in 1986, questions have lingered ever since. Which brings us to our third theory. The Rwandan government was somehow involved. We know Diane spent decades fighting the black market guerrilla trade and that she gained a lot of information about those poachers by way of terror and interrogation. 
But according to researcher Ian Redmond, she also had some dirt on other dangerous people, specifically gold and drug smugglers and possibly government officials. If so, then by 1984, the year before she died, Diane might have been afraid of backlash, something she might have shared with her workers. Listen up, Mtoto. We all better watch our backs. It's not just the poachers we have to worry about. This whole country is corrupt. I have evidence. The government is complicit in the murder of gorillas, and that black market is bigger than we thought. I'm warning you in case they come for me. I have letters proving that government officials are profiteering off this black market. I can use them for blackmail, but they might retaliate. So if you hear guns run, get off the mountain and save yourselves. I'm their target. Diane wrote something similar to researcher Ian Redmond, or at least she tried to. After Diane's death, a carbon copy of the letter was found among her possessions. But upon learning about it, Ian was shocked. He'd never received the original letter. It may have been intercepted by higher powers because those alleged smuggling rings were connected to the very top of the Rwandan government, to Mr. Prote Zagiran Yirazo, better known as Mr. Z. And in 1985, Mr. Z was the Rwandan president's brother-in-law and a prefect of the city of Ruangari, the city closest to Karasoki. And Mr. Z was very aware of Diane Fossey. Remember, he was one of the 20 or so guests to attend her funeral. Allegedly, Diane claimed she knew things about Mr. Z she shouldn't have. She believed he was committing illegal acts profiteering from gold and guerrilla smuggling. The theory continues that she used this information to blackmail Rwandan secret police. It should be noted that Mr. Z has never been charged for any of the actions Diane believed he was part of. But based on Diane's writing, we imagine it all could have gone down like this. I'm making the president an offer. Oh? And what is this offer? He wouldn't like me sharing it. Let's just say I know who has a couple of visas they shouldn't have. Ah, you've come to inform on a criminal. Go ahead. You know very well who it is, but so do I. And I could slip the name of the man holding two gorilla... Um, sorry, holding two visas to my American contacts. I'm sure the president would appreciate your help cracking down on fraud. Mm. But here's the thing. This man is close to the president. Aren't we all? Oh, drop it. I know everything. Something can be arranged. Some money. I don't want money. I want a new visa. A residence visa. I... I... Oh, and another thing. I want those two captive gorillas returned, or I share every name in this operation. How did you get this information? Who told you? You'll get your visa if you keep your mouth shut. It's not exactly clear how she convinced him, but in December 1985, the head of the Rwandan secret police got Diane Fossey her long-term visa. But again, allegedly, a visa wasn't all Diane demanded. She also insisted the officials free a few infant gorillas that were captured. There was one major problem. Those baby gorillas were dead. On top of that, 
Diane signed a deal to make a film that exposed Rwanda's poaching economy and its negative effects on the global climate, a film that might have exposed Mr. Z. So, according to this third theory, Mr. Z and his associates had Diane killed. In Murders in the Mist, journalist Nicholas Gordon suggests a few ways the government may have killed Diane. It seems most likely they either poisoned or strangled Diane, then slashed her dead body, cut a hole in the wall with a machete, and planted hair in her hands, perhaps intentionally creating a crime scene that wasn't easy to solve. This may sound wild, but remember, Diane never got an autopsy, so we don't know her precise cause of death. We do know that fatal machete wounds should have left more blood spatter than was reported. But if she'd been strangled or poisoned, then macheted after death, her wounds wouldn't have bled as much. Notably, this is the theory that Wayne McGuire believes. He thinks the investigators started with the poacher's theory, but quickly found holes, then made him the scapegoat. And as for Emmanuel Relicana, he allegedly had much of the same insider information as Diane and had to be silenced as well. So it was rumored that his death was staged as a suicide. This theory is pretty compelling, but it's impossible to prove. It's based on hearsay and secondhand accounts. And if there were any government records that might help prove that it existed, they would have no doubt been destroyed during the Rwandan genocide in the mid-1990s. Mr. Z is still alive today, but he isn't talking. The thing is, Diane didn't need to stumble upon some international conspiracy to get a target on her back. She'd been causing conflict in Rwanda since her arrival. She was steadfast in her beliefs, thinking her way of active conservation was the only way, which really frustrated locals. Leading up to her death, Rwanda's economy was struggling, and her own workers struggled to keep up. They tried to get Diane to allow ecotourism at Karasoki. The idea was, if Rwandans in nearby villages could own hotels, restaurants, or tour businesses, they wouldn't feel pressured to hunt or poach animals in the Virungas. The thing is, ecotourism is not an ideal solution to animal poaching. It puts stress on the environment and disrupts animals' daily routines, changing their way of life and their quality of life. Tourists can also bring in new germs and diseases. That's especially harmful in the case of gorillas, who share a lot of DNA with humans and are more liable to catch some of our illnesses. Diane might have known or sensed this because she adamantly refused to open up Karasoki. But after she died, Karasoki did open up to tourists. The new head, David Watts, was one of many who fought with Diane about changing their policies. Under his leadership, Karasoki became a tourist destination, and Rwanda saw a huge influx of money. Today, for better or for worse, guerrilla tourism is one of Rwanda's highest sources of foreign revenue. It'll cost you $1,500 just to spend one hour with the guerrillas. So, taking things back to 1985, just before Diane died, you can see why locals wanted to open up the place. It was clear ecotourism would be wildly profitable to the humans in Rwanda, and Diane stood in the way of it. 
Of course, the government couldn't kick her out. They had just granted her a residence visa, and she was a famous environmentalist. Ripping her from her gorillas would likely cause an international scandal. Unless there was another solution. Here's one final chilling variation on the government's cover-up theory. Diane Fossey wasn't killed to cover up a massive smuggling ring. She was killed to save the Rwandan economy. In this version publicly, the Rwandan government let Diane Fossey stay in Rwanda to save face. And privately, they killed her. Who's they, specifically? Well, according to Murders in the Mist, Mr. Z, the local prefect, had heavily invested in restaurants, hotels, and nightlife near Karasoki. Even if he wasn't involved in illegal business dealings, he stood to profit from the elimination of Diane Fossey. And so did all of Rwanda. That is, if the government chose to prioritize the human benefits to ecotourism. Of course, that's just a theory. One of many in a case that has yet to be cracked. There's no telling what would have happened to the gorillas in Rwanda if Diane had lived. Maybe she would have found a better solution. But despite her deep flaws, her death did bring more attention to the gorilla's plight. In a way, she shared the same fate as her favorite gorilla, Digit. Their friendship lives on in films and photographs, showing the world how closely connected animals and humans are. And how the survival or extinction of one creature can impact all of us. Since Diane's work began, mountain gorilla numbers in Rwanda have almost tripled. As of 2023, there are about 600 in the Virunga Mountains and over 1,000 total in the wild. And Karasoki is still an active research center today. Sure, some of that is due to the money and support that comes from ecotourism, the upside of an industry full of downsides. But it would be foolish to ignore the very complicated person who started it all. In eulogizing her for a National Geographic memorial service, Jane Goodall said this. I don't think it's too much to say if Diane hadn't been there, there might be no mountain gorillas in Rwanda today. Diane Fossey wasn't a superhero or a supervillain. She was a real woman trying to save the planet, and she did. She challenged a local government and brought a species back from near extinction. While making some terrible mistakes in the process, ones that current conservationists have learned from. Diane's dedication was her greatest gift and curse, but it seems as if she knew this, and she didn't hesitate to make tough sacrifices to see her mission through. To save the planet, we all need to make trade-offs. Unfortunately, Diane Fossey's final trade-off to save her beloved gorillas was her own life. Thanks for listening to this episode of Dark Green Earth Crimes and Conspiracies, brought to you by Unsolved Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. Be sure to check out our other shows like Solved Murders, Unexplained Mysteries, and Serial Killers. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders for free on Spotify every Tuesday. For more information on Diane Fossey, amongst the many sources we used, 
We found The Dark Romance of Diane Fossey by Harold Hayes, Gorillas in the Mist by Diane Fossey, and the National Geographic documentary series Diane Fossey, Secrets in the Mist, extremely helpful to our research. And if you'd like to learn more and take action on the climate, visit www.spotify.com slash darkgreenresources. Solved Murders, True Crime Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Lisa Marie Gallegos. Stacey Nemec is our supervising editor and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Solve Murders was written by Maggie Admire, edited by Amin Osman, fact-checked by Cheyenne Lopez, researched by Mickey Taylor, produced by Joshua Kern, and sound designed by Juan Borda. It stars Jen Wong, Melissa Medina, Charlie West, Brian Green, and Julian Smith. Our hosts are Wendy McKenzie and me, Carter Roy. Carter Roy.